Welcome to the three o'clock session. As you can see from the PowerPoint, it's called Preaching to Our Iranian Friends. So what we're going to do for the next hour or so is think about essentially the last two years from a, uh, a Christadelphian perspective, but also think a bit further back as concerns Iran itself. And what we're going to think about is the current work that's going on in preaching to our Iranian friends, bringing people to become new disciples of the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, the even harder task of helping people to develop in Christ, to stay true to faith, all the sorts of things which we would then you know, are really important to do over the next months and years up until the Lord Jesus comes back. So what we're going to do is start in a second, but before that, let's have a prayer of thanksgiving and a, a prayer of blessing for the session. Father, we thank you that we do have a hope, that you have given us the hope of salvation in our Lord Jesus. You've given us the joy of being able to be called your children and a hope and a promise of sharing in your nature and serving you forever. Father, it's a wonderful hope and we thank you so much for all that you do for us and for the Lord Jesus in giving his life for us. We also thank you that we have been given the responsibility and the joy of being able to tell others about our hope. And of course, we think specifically now about specifically the people that we're preaching to from Iran. And Father, what a blessing it's been that we are seeing many people want to come to you. Many people want to know about the Lord Jesus more and many people being called out of the world to be part of this worldwide family. Father, it is wonderfully humbling and wonderful that you allow us to be a part of this. And we pray that it would continue to go on, that we would bring more people to you. We would help them to become disciples who get even stronger in their faith, more like your son, and want to share this faith with others as well. We pray that this afternoon would go well, that there would be no technical hitches, but we can all just think about and spend an hour thinking about this wonderful work that's going on. And finally, we pray and give you praise and thank you, because you are a wonderful, loving God. You've called us to serve you, and we love to do it. We love you and our Lord Jesus and we ask you to hear this prayer in his most beloved name. Amen. Okay, so if you'll just let me pause for one second, I'm just going to quickly put some notes on the screen for myself. And I can see, because I've got an iPhone going there as well, that you can just see the presentation, which is good. Okay, so just introduction. That is a, um, a photo taken a year and three months ago at, in Solihull meeting room, at the Midlands Farsi Day. It's a day when pretty much we try and get all the baptised or strong contacts who are Iranian together in one room. Some of the new brothers are able to try their hand at giving some short talks. It's a good day. We do some bilingual singing. We get together and discuss strategy. Um, and as you can see, now this was a year and a, a year and a bit ago, and there's quite a few people there. And one of the themes that we'll look at over this is actually how there is more and more people coming. Not, I won't call it an exponential growth because that's exaggerating, but a growth which does grow month on month and year on year. But first of all, I want to start off with a Bible verse, always a good place to start. John chapter, it's not chapter on John chapter 17, it's actually John chapter 4, so there's the first error, but you'll excuse me for that. John chapter 4 
in the Samaritan village and the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And, you know, it's quite funny. He's saying to his disciples, you've got this saying. It's almost like a saying we'd have, you know, we can put it off till tomorrow. There's four months and then the harvest. We've got time. And he says to them, no, look, the harvest is here. And he's talking specifically here about the Samaritans that were coming. And then he, he also says something interesting. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. And I'll tell you why both parts of this, this passage are really applicable to what we're thinking about. Because the fields genuinely are ripe for harvest. There are so many people who are coming into this country who genuinely want to know about the Lord Jesus, who've maybe heard a bit about him in Iran, but they want to know more. Or haven't heard a thing, but their friend at the hostel there and says, come and hear about this. And they come in here and they want to know more. But also the part at the end, I sent you to reap for that which you have not laboured. Pretty much everyone who I've taught and everyone who I think everyone else has ever taught from an Iranian perspective, it's not like we've gone to them and found them and said, let me tell you about the gospel. They've come to us, come to the country brought, of course, we believe by God, but then come to our classes brought by their friends or their family or someone who said, come along to this. So we, we haven't done the work as such to go out and find them. They've been brought to us. We didn't do that, that, initial part of hard labor but we're the ones who are benefiting and having the joy of helping to reap of bringing them to baptism of developing them afterwards so i think this verse is really brought to life for me anyway by what i've experienced over the last two years and again it's a common theme we'll see hopefully throughout this talk of different verses that really start to come to life Things which we know, we've read them before in the readings, we've studied them maybe, but they become even more powerful when we see them lived out in experience. So let's just think about Iran. Why Iran? You know, why not um, China? Why not Eritrea? Why not Syria? Lots of people from different countries are coming to the UK for asylum. So why Iran? The reason being, and this is not me saying it from preview of ignorance, this is from a book, which means it must be true, um, but a book called Too Many to Jail, uh, written by a non-Christadelphian, but written by an uh, evangelical Christian commenting on what happened in Iran. I can send the details out if people want afterwards, if there's an announcement board or something like that. But essentially what they do is look at why so many people in Iran want to know about the gospel. And they put it down to a number of things. Um, there is a, a religion, there's a religious mindset in Iran. There is a faith, unlike the West, many people, pretty much the majority of people do believe in the concept of a divine being, of a god of some sort. Many of them are very disillusioned with Islam um, because they see the way it's lived out in their country, which is, the more I've got to know people who've come from Iran, a terribly oppressive regime. 
um, and one which over the last 40 or so years has dramatically reduced the living quality of its people through policies and through actions based on trying to have the Islamic Republic come to victory. So many people have become disillusioned with this, but they've known about this person called Jesus because he is a prophet in Islam and he's actually a thinker, a prophet, which is very venerated and respected in Islam as someone who's kind, someone who is forgiving, someone with that type of message. But also something very big in Iran is poetry. They've got lots of poets who, um, it's a very cultural thing. We've got lots of films and TV. They've got lots of poets. And they'll get together at different festivals through the year and read from these poets. And these poets are not necessarily Islamic poets because there's a lot more to Iran's history than Islam. And these poets often talk about Jesus and they talk about all the, you know, the positive things. There are only positive things about the Lord Jesus, but the really, really positive, well-known things about him being kind, forgiving, helping people, giving himself up for others. So they've got this concept of this Jesus character who's in stark contrast to a lot of what they see in Islam, especially the very, uh, very hardline Shia Islam that's played out. And so what this all comes to is there's this real interest in the Lord Jesus, sometimes maybe from an academic or just a pure interest level. But then what will usually happen from what we've heard is that they will get introduced to Jesus as part of the underground Christian movement in Iran. And the, it's called the underground house church movement because lots of more people are becoming interested in Christianity and lots of small secret house churches are forming and usually when someone becomes disillusioned with Islam whether it's because something that's happened to them via the secret police something that they've seen happen or just general disillusionment they want to learn about Christianity and usually there'll be a friend who will say come along to my house church and they start to learn there are lots of these house churches all throughout Iran but then of course comes the problem and again another bible verse we're not talking about this but very much the spirit of it. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, Again, this is the experience of lots of our now brothers and sisters in Iran. The Iranian government does not want the house churches to flourish, even though they are. And the secret police, the SEPA, are tasked with breaking them up, with arresting people. And although it's not strictly illegal to be a Christian in Iran... No, it wasn't strictly illegal to be a gypsy in Stalinist Russia, but you still wouldn't have wanted to have been. Um, What I mean by that is they will arrest people. They will take them off for um, makeup charges of political sedition to try and get them into trouble. Do horrible things to them. I'll leave you to imagine, but the sort of things you'd imagine that police who want to torture people or find out information will do. And if they find a member of a house church, they will try and get all the names of the other members through any means possible. And what will usually happen is sometimes someone will not be at the house church when it's raided. 
but the house church has been raided and such are the, the, the tales and the accounts of what happens to people who get found to be a Christian, they simply leave the country because it's more palatable than staying to, and find out what happens to them. Or potentially someone might have a marked card. So some people have been known to be preaching. They've been talked to by the police and released, but it's very much akin to being released from the Ministry of Love in uh, Orwell's 1984. Again, your card is marked. It doesn't mean you're free. You never know when you could be picked up next and terrible things could happen. So lots of people leave for that reason. Not everyone. They're we do get some people who left for political reasons, Kurdish uh, protesters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it all ends up with a great number of people leaving because they're scared that because of their Christianity, whatever form it's in at that point, they will be persecuted, they will be tortured, bad things will happen to them, and so they escape. And what I'll do is I'll I'll miss out the next part of their journey, which bring which eventually ends up with them coming to the UK. Um, Suffice to say, I'll just say one thing about it for anyone who's involved in the work. There are many different types of journey from Iran to the UK, some easier than others, some terrible, some terrifying, you know, terrible things have happened to some of the people who end up in this country and in our classes. And it is something to be aware of if you're ever involved in teaching or helping someone in that way, they might have had something very bad happen to them on the way over here. But that's an aside. What we want to now focus on is when they start to come into contact with us. So what will happen is they land at the UK, whether it's on a dinghy or on the back of a lorry or some way that they've managed to make it into the UK and claim asylum. They're taken to an initial detention centre and given a screening interview where they're asked basic questions about where you're from, why you've come here, what your reason for fear is, etc, etc. And then usually they're placed in initial accommodation. And when I say initial accommodation, what that means is usually some sort of repurposed building which is being used for them. So for instance, in Derby, an old student halls of residence has been repurposed as an asylum seekers hostel. In Birmingham, behind McDonald's, uh, the old YWCA has been repurposed to be a huge hostel. And what will happen is they'll go to one of these initial accommodations and one I'll just I'll put this this verse up but he still keep talking it's Acts chapter 19 and what I'm going to talk about now is actually reflects is, is more true about five months ago I'll explain why because Covid has slightly changed some things but for the majority of the last two or three years in the UK there were maybe five or six big centres um, one in Derby one in two in Liverpool one in Glasgow one in Birmingham uh, one in Wakefield, and what would happen is people would be sent and all gathered in these initial accommodation places. And what would happen is they'd be waiting there for about four or four to six weeks until they were sent somewhere in the UK. But for those first four to six weeks, they would be in these hostels. And that is where usually they would first come into contact with us. And that's why I put this up. This is Acts chapter 19 verses 8 to 10. Talking about Paul, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the peoples, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. 
This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And it's that theme of him being in one place, the school of Tyrannus, reasoning there daily, a place where essentially he was preaching the gospel, reasoning daily for two years. And we see it said that lots of people came so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, not everyone that lived in these cities has heard the word of the Lord, but certainly pretty much any Iranian that would come to one of those hostels would be aware of usually quite close to where their hostel was, gospel classes going on. And here's a photo of one. This is taken in January last year. This is in Birmingham. And the Birmingham classes have been going for about two years in a centre about four minutes walk from here. And for every Tuesday night and every Friday night, sorry, every Tuesday night and every Friday day, for the pretty much the last year and a half, there's been a class going on where people can come to learn about the gospel, usually going through the CBM 22 course on a rotation basis. So that's a few people who were in Birmingham. Out of that photo, 17 out of the 21 are now baptised brothers or sisters spread around the UK. So just early on, an indication of actually the, you know, the I'll, I'll use the word, success of the preaching of these classes. Next slide, a couple of other photos, just to give a size, of, you know, an impression of the scale of this. So in the bottom left-hand corner, you have Derby Bass Street meeting room, because Derby is about 15 minutes walk away from the hostel in Derby. So again, Wednesdays and Sundays for the last two years, pretty much, gospel classes held there. Wakefield, that's the Light Waves uh, Recreation Centre in Wakefield, quite near to the hostel. Again, classes held there multiple times a week. And this is essentially what has been the, what has been the, the routine for about, depending on the area, one or two years of constant classes teaching people the gospel and lots of people coming to them and lots of people wanting to find out about it. Now, things have changed slightly at the moment, of course, here's Zoom. Um, we're only just being able to start ha um, having classes again in places, and again with face masks and social distancing and all that stuff. But for the last five months, all these classes moved to Zoom and didn't decrease in numbers. So again, even though it hasn't been physical, if you're in a hostel, you've been able to at least twice a week, usually more, get into some sort of class teaching you the basics of the gospel, or if you're baptised, an advanced class running as well. And again, as I said, this is going on for about uh, two years. So the question which often people ask is, well, why us? There are lots of churches um, who try to work with these different people in these hostels, try to attract them and preach the gospel to them. Obviously, we are preaching a different gospel, we believe. There are very different beliefs in what we are, what we preach. But why do people come to us? And not, lot, not loads of them come to us. We have actually increased the amount that choose us rather than other churches. But it would be false to say that, you know, we are the one that they all come to because they don't. There's lots of them who go to Anglican churches or more modern evangelical churches. They go to a number of different places, but the ones who do come to us, why do they come to us? It is true. One of the things you often hear said is because we don't teach the Trinity. And to those, often people will say, well, when I was in my house church in Iran, 
I just couldn't understand the Trinity. And so it's you know a nice thing when they hear that we don't and it, it resonates with them. Again, we don't believe in a literal fiery hell, something which many of them have been scared at in Islam. And when we don't, then again, they're very happy with that. It's a bit of a relief that there isn't a fiery hell of punishment. But again, that, that doesn't mean, that doesn't affect everyone because again, lots of other people go to other churches. So there must be something more. There must be something more which has been why we've been increasing in the amount of people that we've been able to get and why these people have been staying with us as well. And there's two things which I, I think it is thinking about over the last two years. The one thing is our initial and very strong focus on preaching from the Bible. Now, by that, I don't mean, and I think it is a bit of a, a, a bit of a false belief that other churches don't have biblically based expositions and exhortations. And it would be wrong of us to think that. But in the initial preaching in what we're doing, from what I've seen, the focus is very much come here. We will teach you what the Bible says about God about Jesus, about salvation, and it's done in a very structured and very focused way. We want to teach about the Bible, and that's what a lot of them want. A lot of them have been in house churches and haven't had that much access necessarily to a Bible or to materials about the true Christian faith. And so they really want to know more. And if they're coming to a place where the real focus is, we will teach you about the gospel, we will teach you about God, we will teach you about Christ, that's really what attracts them. But secondly, and I think this is one of the benefits of the way that we've been running things, it's the relationships. It's always the relationships which will keep someone there and the relationships which make this bond between us and them strong. So sometimes if they've gone to other churches, they can almost be lost in the milieu of lots of different people and it doesn't really feel like it's a, an intimate or a really focused experience. But usually with us, it's very focused. Um, they form, I mean, the other contacts form real strong relationships with their teachers. The relationships I've forged in just four weeks of classes before someone's gone to a different city. when I can't even usually speak the same language as them. I can't put it into words just how strong those relationships can be that are forged. And I think that's one of the benefits of the way we've been doing things. And some, in some ways, we'll see in a second, the small nature of our community has been a def definite benefit in this. And that's why it seems people have come because of that, that relationship they've had with the teachers and the people they've been teaching. The fact they can ask questions, we can really question it. They can get their notebooks, they can write down, they can explore, they can ask questions. Someone said once in the in other church we went to, they wouldn't allow us to ask questions but they can ask questions, get the answers, disagree, debate, give their view. It really is a focus on let's look at, let's learn about the gospel together. And a few Bible verses to illustrate this. And again, it's wonderful when you see verses from the Bible and the ancient wisdom, which of course is still relevant. So here's the first one, one of my favorites, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, the words of the Apostle Paul. Well, I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. He's saying, look, I'm going to focus on the core of, <laughs> core of this faith. I'm going to teach you about Christ 
and him crucified, about the hope, about the love of God which he showed for us, about what it does for us to be able to bring us to God. That was his focus. And that's been the focus of the preaching, the initial preaching that's been going on in these initial centres. It has been very much, we're going to teach you the Bible. And we, in some places, whenever I've been involved, I can only speak from my own experience, that's been made very explicit. We've actually said, look, we're not actually here to give you lots of free stuff or anything like that. We're here because we want to teach you about the gospel. We want to tell you about the love of God shown in the Lord Jesus. And so that's been the focus. And that's what's really been bringing people quickly to a knowledge of God. And it's been very, very successful. The next verse, and again, another personal favourite from the Apostle Paul, showing the type of man he was. Uh, verses 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had been become very dear to us. And again, that is something we've really tried to put into practice. And I'll show you some photos later on illustrating this. But the whole reason why the gospel was so successful in Thessalonica, how, you know, even after the Apostle Paul had only been there for a short time and he left and then they were being persecuted and he actually was desperate to know, have, has their faith been shaken? He sent Timothy to find out. He wrote the letter desperate to find out. And he actually found out their faith was very successful so that others had heard about how they turned to God and Christ so powerfully. And the reason surely is because of the example of what he said. You know, when him and the other, other preachers were there, they were there preaching the gospel, living with them, showing them by example, building those relationships, genuinely caring for them, sharing their lives with them. And again, that's what has been so successful in this preaching, not just turning up and giving a class, then disappearing, getting to know the people as much as possible, where possible having food together, when they've got problems, helping them out, seeing what we can do to help them out and giving them, you know, giving them a sense of community, sense of relationship in a country where they've come to, they've got nothing and are feeling very alone and very unloved to have someone who's actually giving them that attention, the bonds which are, which are, which are built Again, cannot put it into words unless you've experienced it. And again, Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, which illustrates where this happened in a different place when Paul is speaking to the Galatians. Excuse me one second. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. That was the love the Galatians had to Paul. And again, it's something which I've seen come to life. When you think about it this way, you've got someone who's had to leave their country and their family out of fear because they wanted to learn more about Christ. You're there. You're the, pretty much the first person in some ways that they're seeing in the UK and you're giving them what they wanted. You're teaching them about Christ. You're giving them your time. You're helping them to develop that knowledge and the, the thankfulness and the gratitude and the love that gets shown back to the teachers and the people who are helping them. Again, very spellbinding. Can't, again, can't put into words. It's just so powerful and wonderful, those relationships that are formed both ways, the love shown both ways between the teachers and the students. And just the final verse. This is John chapter 17. I have got it right this time. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, 
even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Of course, this prayer, the whole aspect of the prayer in John 17 is the Lord Jesus praying for his disciples and those who would come after them, that they would all be one together because that would convince the world that God sent the Lord Jesus. The same principle as when he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all know that you are my disciples. And this is the other thing, which has always been a fascinating verse to me of the importance of people showing that love, the disciples showing that love to each other and to others working that way. And that would be something which would make people think maybe there is something about this gospel that they're talking about. And again, that has happened. People working together to preach together, the bonds formed, the love, the relationships formed, and then that love seen by the contacts and shown to the contacts again something which is so powerful and that has been essentially the aim the aim of those four to six weeks where we had people before they got sent somewhere out else out into the country the aim was essentially 100% bible 100% love those two things showing them the love of god in the gospel through christ and the love of god hopefully shown through our actions and the way we treated them. And the aim of those four to six weeks was to make that much of an impression with both of those things. That they would want to continue learning about God, but also want to stick with us as a community, which was hopefully showing them the true gospel and the love and that community that goes along with it. So what would happen at the end of four to six weeks? Well, they would get sent somewhere else in the country. And it could be anywhere. They could be sent to Glasgow, Bradford, Newcastle, Derby, Nottingham, all the sorts of different places around the country. And we never knew until one day, usually I'd be at work and I'd get, and this was a common occurrence, I'd get a text, which was just basically a location. And you look at the location and say, oh, it's coming from Middlesbrough and it's from uh, Reza. So that means Reza's been moved from the Derby hostel to Middlesbrough. And that's what would happen. People got moved around all around the country. And that's where all of these little pockets of disciples started to grow because thankfully in the vast majority, those who were involved in our classes would get sent to places where we had ecclesias. In the vast majority, there were some edge cases, but in the vast majority sent to places where there were ecclesias and sent to places where there were ecclesias who were begging for more, places where ecclesias had been shrinking for many years and were desperate for someone to preach to, to teach, to show the love of God to. And suddenly it started happening. It's how, you know, Rochdale uh, has had uh, 33 baptisms in the last two to three years. Sheffield, I think 31 baptisms in the last two years. Places like this, where suddenly there's been an influx of people who want to hear about the gospel. And again, what a blessing that's been to many different ecclesias where maybe they were shrinking, maybe they were wondering, is it the time for us to call it a day? Maybe go to and dissolve and move to a, a different ecclesia in, in a neighbouring area? And they've actually found, no, there's a real reason to stay here because we've just been sent a whole group of people who want to hear the gospel. And again, that was where we almost like, involved in the initial teaching it was passed the baton on to that ecclesia in the hope 
and of course the hope which was realized that that ecclesia would do the same show them the same love teach them the gospel start that work which had been started in the centers and again that is when we would usually start getting baptisms coming through after someone has learned a lot of the gospel in the initial centers but then continues that learning in a different place eventually comes to the point where they want to be baptized it takes different amounts of time for different people and then different ecclesias suddenly started to grow in size with Iranian baptisms and anyone who's seen the you know the back page of the Christadelphian over the last two years it can't have escaped anyone's attention there are lots of funny sounding names appearing in towns which are sometimes quite remote and these funny sounding names are Iranians who want to hear the gospel and have been baptized and the funny thing about this was it could happen very quickly so this is a photo um, of myself and Sam Walton, and there are two Iranians, Ibrahim and Hamid with us. So this was the summer of 2018, and these were our two Iranian contacts that were in Nottingham with us at the time. The next slide is pretty much a year later. Again, there you've got a whole back room of Nottingham South Ecclesia full of baptized people and people who want to learn the gospel. Again, if we go a year on, haven't got the photo of it, but pretty much doubled again to the effect we've now got uh, 32 baptized Iranian members in Nottingham South, with thankfully one more being added tomorrow morning as well. But that's the rate that it's suddenly increasing in that way. Again, just to give another example, because one of the things I'll say later is don't think it can't happen to you. Uh, Coventry East, last year, there were two, two or three very dear friends of ours from the Birmingham hostel who were sent to Coventry East. And there you go. We've got uh, two of the Iranians there with some of the members of uh, Coventry East. And a few months later, again, in the back room at Coventry East, lots of contacts, lots of baptisms. It can and did and has grown that quickly and more and more as well. So another, another Bible verse, one we know very well. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And again, that is something which, not to the extent of Acts, of course, but there's something which is true, which being involved in the work we've seen of the amounts of baptisms increasing from maybe where it used to be 15 to 20 a month to pre-coronavirus being getting up to 40, 50 different people around the UK from the Iranian community being baptised a month. There's often been a saying, it's not about numbers, in some ways true, because of course we want to avoid the principle of just trying to get numbers because then that would usually lead people to water down the gospel or make compromises to try and get numbers. But if you could put your hand on your heart and say the gospel is genuinely being preached, these people are genuinely understanding and wanting to commit, then yes, numbers are important because it's shown that it's actually working and increasing, that the gospel is being preached and more and more people want to come. And I think it is something we should rejoice in that numbers are growing 
of people who want to get baptized. I think we've now reached, uh, keeping up the spreadsheets that we do, 700 baptized Iranian members in the UK in the last three and a half years. Again, much more weighted towards the more recent uh, past. But that's it's a hefty number, 700 people baptized in that period of time. And as I said, more to come. Lots of people are learning the gospel in the different hostels and hotels around at the moment. And so moving on then, when someone is baptized, well, in that case, then it almost gets, uh, well, the next stage begins. We always say, rightly so, baptism is just, baptism is just the beginning. We've got to try and then help these people to develop their faith and grow in Christ let me just quickly see what my next photo is. Yes, not photo, my next verse. Very, very much brought to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 8 to 11. Of course, written about the Holy Spirit gifts. But so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying... I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And to some extent, again, this is true of the experience with our Iranian brothers and sisters and friends. They speak a different language to us, obviously. And there isn't that immediate ability to be able to communicate to the same depth that natives here can communicate with each other. So there is, it is harder, it does make things harder if there's a problem unless you've got someone who can translate for you, you've got to talk to someone one-on-one. -on -one. It's very hard. It's not like you can just go to an English person and talk to them. So it does make it harder. But one of the things, again, I want to say is don't overestimate that. It doesn't, it makes it harder to do a lot of things, but it's not a real big barrier in forming strong relationships and that's the whole point of what you know what we're trying to do once people have left these initial accommodation centers and are in these different cities and with their ecclesia in this city the next role is to try and integrate english and iranian together into these ecclesias and different ecclesias have different tactics of how to do it and there are lots of discussions that go on between different ecclesias as what's the best way to do it is it always to have everyone in the same room is it sometimes to have a separate class and come together for the breaking of bread? Are there different classes you could have? Lots of things like that. And there's benefits and drawbacks to every approach. But ecclesial life is not the meeting. And again, that's a fact we, 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 we all, of course, have to know. The three to four hours out of a week that the ecclesia officially comes together that is an ecclesial life and where real relationships are forged. Relationships are forged in day-to-day -day life, in working together. And that's the area where, you know, the language barrier doesn't actually become that big a problem. Again, I've formed, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, waxing lyrical or uh, exaggerating. I have formed wonderful friendships with people who in some ways who I couldn't actually speak to properly and I had to rely if I wanted to speak to them in depth on a translator. But the shared experiences of spending time together, of teaching the gospel, of working together, have forged stronger bonds than I have with English people who I can speak to very easily. And you know, people understand it. I remember very awkward 
in some ways, hour and a half car journey taking one of our contacts from Nottingham to Birmingham. The only thing I could say to him the whole way was, oh, Mohamed Salah, really good goal. He understood that. But again, it's accepted. We understand that, that, that you're not necessarily going to be able to talk to each other. There are still ways you can communicate though too, whether it's being together whilst on a journey, listening to music, showing each other photos of family or things that you're interested in. It doesn't have to be that there is no communication or no relationship at all. Similarly, just to, and I'll illustrate this. So I'm going to take you back in time to October of 2018, where Derby Hostel first came online. We had eight people who started coming to classes. At that point, they came to Nottingham. Um, different reasons why, but at that point, from the Derby Hostel, they came to Nottingham South. And we had about four weeks with a group of seven or eight Iranians who came to us because they wanted to learn the gospel. And what we said was, let's just throw everything in there. What we said, 100% Bible, 100% love. And so, you know, we went out to Persian restaurants for a meal together. Could speak some to some of them, couldn't speak to others. Got them as much as we could for a study day. This was the, the Jesus study day after about two weeks of them being in the uh, in Nottingham or Derby with us, having meals together, spending time together, playing table tennis, having focus on talks, always the focus on teaching the Bible, teaching about the Lord Jesus. But with that, the time of spending time together, playing together. Um, that's not actually from that time, but I thought I'd put it in. That's actually my wedding, my English wedding, because I got married in Turkey. But then my lovely wife came to the UK and we had a celebration in Nottingham. And that's Iranians and English all mixed together, dancing, eating, having a good time. And again, people who usually don't find it very hard to interact. In that, all boundaries were broken down, good relationships forged. And here, this is the original group. The originals is myself and Sam on the left of that photo, used to still do call them. Again, ecclesial football on a Sunday night. We went and played football together. So that's four weeks. Four weeks of seeing them maybe three times a week on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, and on a Wednesday for classes and hanging out. And then they all got sent to separate places, some to Dudley, some to Stoke, uh, some to Derby. But the relationships forged were, again, I can't put it into words, that strong, that two of the people in that photo you're seeing, I do count as two of my best friends. They are baptised brothers. And we have, I think the reason being is because we were, everything we were doing was focused around the gospel. And again, there's a lesson for that in us. Often we do lots of social things as ecclesias together, which nothing wrong with that. But think back, if anyone on this call thinks back to the people you've always built the strongest relationships in Christ with, it's always the people you've worked together around the gospel or spent time talking and discussing around the gospel, because that's where the true bonds are forged in God and Christ. And through different circumstances, that was always the focus of the relationship with these, these guys. We were teaching the gospel. That was the reason we were meeting together. So our focus was all about the gospel. We were teaching them. They were learning from us about Jesus. Even when we were playing table tennis or hanging out or eating, it was in the context of the gospel. And then when two of the people in this photo got baptized relatively quickly, um, whilst they were, were ju or just after they left Derby, then working together with them, 
preaching to new contacts, teaching them. The focus was always on the gospel, and that's why those bonds were so built, were so strong. Again, and you really do get the um, some of the Bible verses come to life. Paul talking to Timothy about him as his son in Christ. You know, people who I genuinely, I'm a young man, sort of, and I don't have any children, but I genuinely have experienced that father-son relationship in a spiritual sense because when you teach on the gospel, that is what happens. Again, in some ways, this verse here, when Paul says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? I'm in no way comparing myself to the Apostle Paul disclaimer. But that sentiment expressed by the Apostle Paul, again, I felt that a lot stronger. Maybe that's, and maybe that's my fault, my problem, but with the people I've been involved with preaching the gospel, really brought it home to me than when, when they're weak, me feeling weak. And again, that verse, I haven't got it on here, but the verse about building on the foundation of the apostles from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If any man builds on this, let him build with good things like gold, not wood, uh, wood uh, hay and stubble. The importance of building people up, that's been a very sobering verse to think about of the people that I've helped preach to that are, and then they've baptised near me. What am I doing to make sure we're building on those foundations of the gospel of Christ and the apostles? And that is, so that the reason I just told you all that was, I wanted to try and illustrate the point that even if the language can't be spoken in lots of social interactions, don't underestimate the relationships which can be formed, the strong relationships in working together for the gospel. And that is what we have to do now. Um, and in some ways it's harder than the preaching. The title of this is Preaching to Our Iranian Friends. Preaching never ends, really, even when someone is baptised. It's a lot easier in some way to bring someone to baptism and then than it is all the work after to try and help someone negotiate a new life in Christ with all the baggage and all the problems they may have from their old way of life or from their experiences. And again, that's a, a top tip, as it were. One of the things which I think we can't do, um, I think it's the right word to use, is deify the Iranians. It's, uh, what I mean by that is sometimes we can have a tendency to say, aren't they so amazing? Aren't they so amazing, their faith? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I've met lots of different Iranians in lots of different places. Some of them, yes, they've got a faith which you think, well, actually, that's wow, that's really strong. Some of them, yeah. It's not necessarily that strong. They've got problems, like, you know, um, different Iranians that I've been involved in. Yes, they've been baptised, and then they've made some stupid mistakes afterwards, done some stupid things. And I think what we've got to do is make sure we treat them in some ways as we would an English convert. We don't look down on them and think, well, maybe they're just doing it because of this. Maybe they don't really understand the gospel or anything like that. But then we don't start waxing lyrical and saying, oh, they're so amazing. They're so much better than us. No, none of us are better than each other. We've all got our own weaknesses and our own strengths, and we're all trying to help it together. And when you read 1 Corinthians, when you read 1 Thessalonians, you have wonderful people who've embraced the gospel and do some really stupid and unchristlike things sometimes. And that is, again, that is the reality of life after baptism. Then it's like anything. English brothers and sisters make mistakes. Iranian brothers and sisters make mistakes and we've just got to be very real and not about how it can be quite hard afterwards as it is with English people. 
that we are trying to keep each other on the right way. So that's just the point I want to make from that. We want to develop people. And I'm going to actually skip over the next slide very quickly onto this slide. This is just talking about, again, these 21 students from this original class, of which 17 got baptised and are all around the country. And again, knowing all of these people personally, because I taught them for about four or five weeks before they left and have got good links with them since as well. There are all different types of people with different backgrounds, with different strengths, with different weaknesses. And that's just what we've got to be aware of during the preaching. And then when we are helping them develop afterwards, we've really got to make sure that we are just doing everything we can to help them grow in Christ. The focus is helping them to learn more spiritually. And sometimes they'll think things which we think, well, why would you think that? Surely, you know, surely every Christian knows that. No, because they haven't got the background that a lot of us have of being brought up um, and saturated with lots of these things from an early age. So it's, it's hard. It's amazing, very rewarding, very hard, can make you pull your hair out, can make you jump for joy. All of the different sort of things which happen with it um, wouldn't change it for the world. Obviously, it's a wonderful work to be involved in. But what now? I said I'd talk about COVID, and um, again, sometimes I've done a few of these different talks um, because I've been involved in the work um, with Iranians. Then, obviously, sometimes if there's an event like this, people want to know about it. And I sometimes think, well, am I telling people a lot of what they already know? Um, or are people sitting there and thinking, well, that's all very good, and it's great work that's been going on, but I'm in X ecclesia or Y ecclesia. Who hasn't seen anyone or any Iranians come? You know, it's nice to hear about, but not really relevant to me. Let me just take you to this next slide again. Again, I actually managed to put John 4 in there, even though I didn't put the verses in, but I got it half right. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. This is essentially a thing to hopefully say to be prepared because no ecclesia who's got a lot of Iranians was expecting that they would. Not really. So don't know. It could happen to anyone in a good, and that's, not on a, that's a good thing. It could happen to anyone. But this verse as well, again, again, about harvesting. This is the Lord Jesus. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. In many ways, again, this verse, the principles of this verse applies to today. There are lots of people who need shepherds. To help them to teach them about the gospel and to teach them how to live a life in Christ and could always do with more workers in the harvest so if you're in a city which has Iranians in, in an ecclesia and you think well actually there's lots of classes going on and they're, they're being taught that way one of the things which is really again from experience lots of places will have classes set up where classes will be happening and teaching people. But real help is things outside of classes, building relationships with people, inviting them around to our house for food or our garden, COVID rules at the moment, but inviting them, spending time with them, doing all these sorts of things. Even if you think you're in a city where there is work going on, 
there's always more help that can be needed to take people out, to help them, to talk to them, to do whatever you can. There's always a, a need anywhere, whether Iranian or English, for more workers in the harvest. Um, so that's in maybe cities where there are hostels. Another reason why. So at the moment, it is no longer the case that there are six or seven big hostels around the country. There are lots of refugees still coming into the country, but also they haven't been sent out from these initial hostels to the, the places, the houses they, and the cities they get sent to. So the government, you've probably seen on the news, are renting out whole hotels to house people in. Norwich, Chester, Bromsgrove, all sorts of places like that have suddenly got hotels with lots of Iranian contacts in. In Bristol, last week, suddenly 10 new contacts in a hotel in Bristol. So my cousin there is being kept very busy now. But um, don't think that suddenly it couldn't happen. There could be a hotel which the government decides to buy up or rent up and put a load of people there of whom probably lots of them have heard about the gospel through their Iranian friends who are already baptized in this country. And they've said, check out the Christadelphians. So you could suddenly get 10 who want the gospel landing on your doorstep. But another thing, all these people at some point in these hostels and hotels are gonna be distributed around the country. We didn't used to get many baptisms happening in hostels and hotels because people weren't there for long enough. But there have been some people who've been there for months now. And in two of the hostels in Birmingham, there are about 15 baptized believers in each. At some point, they're gonna be sent out into the country and into a different city. You. Your ecclesia might have seven baptized people suddenly arrive in needs of need of shepherding. So again, be prepared. It could happen. Um, Sheffield, I think in 2018, never expected suddenly a load of Iranians to drop on their doorstep. Uh, Derby Bass Street never expected in 2018 that a hostel would open up 15 minutes walk from their hall. But it did. And they adapted. So that is, I think, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. And if maybe someone is listening to this and thinking, oh, what am I going to do? Again, don't worry. Everyone had that uh, reaction when it first happened. And we're actually a lot more over the country now, a lot slicker with resources that we've got. So this is just quickly. Hamid, who's the chap on the far left, he was taught the gospel by Sam because we had no translator and no real resources at that point in Nottingham taught the gospel largely through Google Translate. So even if you've got nothing else, it was possible through that. Now, Google Translate has many problems and it, you know, it was very basic stuff. But even if there's nothing else, that person was taught the gospel largely through Google Translate. But we've got, as I said, we've got Slicker. Um, yes, that is me on there. Uh, there's YouTube channels. Um, there are, I've just put this, this is Sale. And Sale now has lots of different talks about the first principles, the whole of the CBM 40 course done up in English and Farsi. There's a more uh, shorter, compact 10 lesson course with myself, you can see there, and, and Brother Amir. Again, in English and Farsi. So if you get sent a load of Iranian contacts, even if you can't speak to them or you've got no translator there, there are resources that you can sit with them, hear what gospel they're hearing, hear it being preached to them. And these have been used by smaller ecclesias sometimes who haven't had those resources. And then, of course, for um, uh, baptised people, if you suddenly get a load of baptised people arriving, 
again, there are advanced YouTube channels. There's um, Cardiff's one I've put on the right-hand side and the one, my own one on the left-hand side, which myself and my wife do. But advanced courses about you know, key aspects of Christian living, disciple studies, studies of the Lord Jesus, book studies, all sorts of things where if you're thinking, how can we spiritually feed them? There are things and resources available. There are Zoom calls and Skype calls that happen all over the country. If you had a load of people come and you want to get them involved in these, just reach out to people. People who've already got um, Iranians in their ecclesia or the ALS can advise of different Zoom and Skype classes relevant to people you might have. Uh, there's a CBM 40 book in Farsi, CBM 22 lesson course of PowerPoints in Farsi, and there's this uh, website uh, which has a list of all the resources. I won't go into too much detail. What I just wanted to say is, if suddenly you get sent a lot of different Iranians, there are resources, you're not alone. Reach out, find the resources, let's discuss together and let's work together. And that, I think, has pretty much brought us to the end. We've got three minutes left, so it's almost perfect timing. Um, we will have a closing prayer in a second. But um, what I've tried to do is give you a whistle-stop tour of where it starts in Iran, why they come to the UK, the preaching that gets done, the work that needs to be done afterwards, the amazing blessing it is from the Lord and our God to give to us, and the importance of the work. And I think the key to it is all of us are learning together and growing together in how to deal with this. And so one of the things, whether, you know, I'm, I've been involved in the work for two years, I still ring up brothers in different ecclesias to say, what are you doing with this? We've come across this situation. What have you experienced? The key is for us all to keep talking. If we are involved in the Iranian work, talk with each other, help each other, help each other learn and help them learn and grow and come closer to Christ because it's amazing. There are so many people getting baptized and there will be more and more. Uh, so as many people as can to get involved in this work, genuine people wanting to come and see the gospel, amazing thing to be involved in. So on that note, we haven't got a closing hymn, so I will do a closing prayer now. Father, we pray to you once again. We pray to you because we love the work that you give us to do. 